Hello and welcome. From PI Media, this is Curious Minds. I'm Kelly O'Loughlin. And I'm Ran Levy. This week's episode, The Ancient Indo-European Language, Part 2. previous episode, we were introduced to the Indo-European language, the mother of many modern languages spoken throughout vast territories, from Europe through Iran and Afghanistan, all the way to India. Discovering this mother language is why we can find a connection, a resemblance, between words in different languages, like Latin and Sanskrit, for instance. Today, Ron and I will continue telling the story of the ancient Indo-European language through details that were revealed from its reconstructed vocabulary, and we'll learn how contemporary genetic research can help describe the life and culture of these people who spoke the language about 4,500 years ago. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge a person who assisted us with the research for these episodes, whose voice you have already heard in the previous show, Kevin Stroud, the creator of the History of English podcast. I'm a devoted listener of Kevin's podcast due to his unique way of using linguistics in order to awaken the history of the English language. It's a wonderful way to tell history, and it's amazing that it's done so rarely. Because you can discuss ancient events, but when you bring language into it, people become connected to the history. And, and that's kind of what I do. When I tell the, the story of the, the Anglo-Saxons, who were the Germanic settlers in Britain, you know, after the 5th century, um, it all sounds very tribal and ancient until you start talking about their language and words they used for certain things. And you start to realize... Oh, that's where those words came from that I use every day. You know, I'm using the same words they used, and now I know where they came from. So it provides that personal connection that you don't always get when you're reading or studying history. Here's a summary of what we have discovered so far. William Jones was an English judge posted in colonial India in the 18th century. He had a reputation as a linguistic prodigy. He spoke many languages. And while in India, he noticed a remarkable resemblance between ancient Sanskrit and European Latin. This discovery led him to believe that the source of Farsi, Sanskrit, English, French, and, well, almost all the European languages, was one common ancient language called Proto-Indo-European, or just Indo-European. About half of the world's population today speaks a language that is descended from Indo-European. Just about every European language. It's easier to say which languages are not part of that family. Uh, you think of pretty much every European language from Russian to French to German to Greek to English to the Scandinavian languages, Dutch. I mean, it's all part of that family. 
the, the few exceptions, uh, you know, the, the Basque language of northern Spain is not Indo-European. Uh, the, the language of Hungary, the Magyar language is not considered Indo-European. Uh, and a few languages in northern Europe, um, Estonian, uh, Finnish, you know, they're considered part of a related but different language family. But pretty much every other language spoken in Europe is considered part of the Indo-European family. And then again, as you continue uh, into the South Asia, you get, uh, again, the, the mod- many, many of the modern languages of northern and central um, India, uh, many of which descended from Sanskrit. And as again, the, the many of the languages of Iran, Afghanistan, you know, those languages uh, are ultimately descended from ancient Persian. And that's really the connection there that modern linguists now know, you know, that, that William Jones had pointed to, we now know is true, that the languages of northern India and Persia were once part of a, a common language family called the Indo-Iranian languages. And it was a separate offshoot uh, from a separate migrating tribe that probably went around the eastern side of the Caspian Sea and migrated southward. But again, all of those languages all came from the same source. In Germany, the French occupation of the late 18th century grew people's feelings of nationalism. Jacob Grimm, one of the well-known brothers who wrote Grimm's fairy tales, was influenced by this rising nationalism, and he devoted himself to researching the common roots of the Germanic people. Back then, the Germans were divided into many duchies and counties, and the German language was the one obvious element that united them. Grimm compared words from different languages with the same meaning. For example, the Latin pater and the English father. He identified repetitive patterns of sound changes between words. For example, the words pater and father sound the same, except the sound p became f in English. This change, known as a sound shift, occurred in many other words, which allowed Grimm to further identify several shifts, such as the shifts from T to D, from C to H, and more. These sound shifts were named after him, and they are called Grimm's Law. This sort of linguistic law allowed linguistics to identify several other sound shifts in different languages. The discoveries within the Indo-European language allowed linguistics to do the impossible, or well, what had seemed impossible. They reconstructed more than 1,500 words, even though they had no written evidence of the language. They did it by comparing words from different languages with the same meaning and reverse engineering them. In other words, where a P became F, they reversed the sound, from F back to P. If, after the process of reverse engineering, different words from different languages became the same exact word, then it makes sense to assume that this is how the original word sounded in the Indo-European language, the mother of all modern variations. Jacob Grimm's work with reversed engineered words revealed a never-before-seen glimpse into the lives of the mysterious Indo-European culture. There was a process by which linguists looked at the words themselves and then compared that to archaeological evidence and other known historical accounts, and they tried to piece it together. And what they found is that the pieces do fit together if you look very closely. So let's look closely, as Kevin suggests. 
What does what we've learned about the Indo-European language reveal regarding the lifestyle and culture of the Indo-Europeans? Well, my first question is, where did they live? Right. The descendants of the language were really spread out geographically, from the North Pole in Norway and Sweden, all the way to the humid valleys of central India. But did the Indo-Europeans live in Europe and then migrate south or move from south to north? There were words within the language for cows and sheep uh, and horses, but there were no words for exotic animals, no, no words for animals from the Arctic or no words for animals from the Mediterranean. The same thing with you know, plants. Uh, a lot of plants, beech trees, elm trees, a lot of things you would find in, in moderate climates, but not really words for you know, things you would find in the Mediterranean or further south. That makes sense. In Israel, where I live, there are many olive trees. Being a common crop, it's no wonder that even the Bible mentions the word olive. The Indo-Europeans did not have a word like that in their vocabulary. And this brings us to believe that they didn't live in the Middle East. Let's look even further. Using their language, we can also define the eastern border of where the Indo-Europeans lived. They had words for honeybee and mead and honey. And honeybees only lived in certain parts of Europe. Uh, they lived basically in the area west of the Urals. So they lived in Europe, not east of the Urals in Asia. So again, as you put all these pieces together, you start to narrow the, the scope down to a certain region. The archaeological and linguistic evidence suggests that the Indo-Europeans lived, most likely, in the wilderness north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, in an area that is today's Ukraine and southern Russia. The same wilderness that later became the home of the Mongols, where Genghis Khan had his great conquering spree. Words we now know in the Indo-European language, like weaving and sewing, reveal when the people of this culture lived. They talk about, in the language, their references to um, weaving and sewing, and that implies that there were sheep that had wool that was long enough and thick enough that it could have been used for that purpose. Archaeologists and other historians know that the sheep of Europe wouldn't have worked. They, they didn't have wool that was long enough for that purpose when they were first introduced. They have a sense of when sheep were introduced, how long it took for the hair to grow long enough that it could have been used for, for weaving and, and sewing. So again, it's just, these just very random pieces of knowledge kind of get thrown into the pot to try to figure all this out. Words that describe wagons and riding horses suggest a lower boundary for the Indo-European timeline. Since until 4500 BC, approximately, things like wagons weren't invented yet. And we can put the upper boundary of dating when they lived at the point where the Indo-European language started splitting into other languages known to us today. Beyond that point, we actually start to see the emergence of the first daughter languages. So in other words, the first branches of that family start to become distinct. Uh, the Hittite language uh, in Anatolia is considered, generally considered to be an Indo-European language, and it's in existence by, you know, the, the early 2000 BC reign, around 2000 BC it's in place. Uh, the Greek language, the first 
Greek language, the Mycenaean Greek language, evolved from that original Indo-European language. It's in place by around, again, 17, 1800 BC. Uh, and then you, again, start to get the, the language of Sanskrit text start to pop up shortly after that. So, you, you know, they know that by that point, that original ancient language had started to fracture into the various daughter languages that came later. So beyond that point, we're kind of out of that time frame. But that kind of gives you a general sense of when the language might have been spoken. All these calculations put the culture of the Indo-Europeans between roughly 4500 BC and 2500 BC, about a 7,000 year span. It's important to note that these are estimates, of course, and that not all experts agree on the details and assumptions. Yet this is the general consensus. What else can we learn from the reconstructed words of the Indo-Europeans? Well, the words sheep, calf, cow, and ox suggest that they had domesticated animals that they used for work and food. They also had dogs. The word kwan is Proto-Indo-European for dog and the source of the word canine. They also had words for plow, furrow, and flour mill. So we know they had agricultural skills. Right. They lived in structures called domo, a word that came over to English as domestic. Overall, the Indo-Europeans had more words for animals, domesticated and non-domesticated, than they did for plants or agricultural crops. This fact suggests that they relied on hunters and shepherds rather than on farmers and agriculture. The Indo-European language also reveals clues about the social structure of its people. They had more words to describe male relatives than female ones. For example, napot is a word that describes any male relative who is not a son. By the way, this is the source for the English word nephew and the term nepotism as a sort of having influence due to family relations. The abundance of terms for describing males within a family, in comparison to fewer words that describe female relations, suggests that the Indo-European culture was patriarchal. From one unique word, we learn another fascinating characteristic regarding social aspects of this culture, the word ghosty. In modern English, like in many other languages, the words host and guest are two separate words with two different distinct meanings. A host is someone who invites people to their home, while a guest is the one who's visiting. These two words both came from one word, the Indo-European ghosty, where the sound G shifted to H, which means that ghosty holds a double meaning, both guest and host. The fact that ghosty has a double meaning tells us that in a nomad society where migrating tribes often crossed into each other's territories, today's guest can be tomorrow's host. This assumption leads us to believe that hospitality was significant to this culture. The word ghosty is the source for other modern words like hospital and hotel, both involving a meaning of hospitality. In addition to the positive side of hospitality, the word ghosty is the source of the word hostile, which means that guests are not necessarily friendly. You know, I've been told that the modern Russian word for host actually still preserves this double meaning, and Russian is also a descendant of the Proto-Indo-European language. Anyway, 
these are just a few examples of what is believed today about the Indo-European people. So, the linguistic evidence indicates that Indo-Europeans lived about 6,000 years ago in the Euro-Asian steppe. But they weren't the only people around, you know. Europe had already been settled by farmers who made their way to the continent from the Middle East. In Mesopotamia, urban civilizations were getting ready to become some of the greatest empires human history had ever known, from Sumer to Assyria. But this raises an interesting question. What enabled the Indo-European language to spread over continents at the expense of other languages? CM Pod is proudly sponsored by Outbrain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably used Outbrain today. You just didn't realize it until now. Outbrain is the service that recommends which stories to check out next when you're browsing your favorite sites. Didn't know there was a service for that? Ever wondered why you see the stories that you see on sites like CNN, ESPN and People magazine? It's because Outbrain uses algorithms to figure out what you might like to see next based on your interests and other readers like you. So, the next time you reach the end of a story on your favorite site and you're thinking about what's next, remember, Outbrain thinks of that for you. Outbrain. We could all use a little direction. Visit Outbrain.com for more info. The first clue to solving the mystery can be found, of course, within the Indo-European language itself. There's a lot of mystery in here, but, but there are clues in the language. And one of the clues is, again, uh, there, there are references to certain technologies, wagons, wheels indicates, give part of the answer. Uh, they, they have a lot of words related uh, to, to horses, horse domestication, horse riding, which was important. So we know they were herders, they were pastoralists, they, they moved around, they were nomads. They, were, they didn't build you know, cities and, and become fixed in one place. The Indo-Europeans had advanced technologies for their time. The word equus means horse, the source of the modern word equestrian. Well, riding horses and being able to harness them was pretty advanced in the early Bronze Era, and existing European natives didn't have those skills yet. Having horses and carriages meant that the Indo-Europeans could move around a lot, free of constantly being dependent on water and food sources. They could travel far distances. This was a big advantage over other people without those skills. It really was. There isn't much archaeological evidence from the early era of human history. Most of what we know about the people who lived in Europe and in the Eurasia steppe regions back in the Bronze Age comes from graves known as the Kurgan burials. These graves are one of the few known remnants that belong to an ancient culture, the Yamna people. The Yamnas lived in the Eurasian steppe around 4500 BC, and many scholars believe that they were the Proto-Indo-Europeans, that is, the people who spoke the Indo-European language. But since the Yamnas were nomadic, and the only evidence of their existence are a few dozen graves, Experts couldn't prove the connection. But 30 years ago, 
A new revolutionary technology gave scientists a powerful tool for dating ancient remnants, the molecular clock. And by the way, we dedicated two full episodes of this podcast to the molecular clock a while back, so have a listen if you're interested. Yep, highly recommended. It was one of my favorite episodes. The molecular clock allows scientists to identify and trace certain DNA mutations across generations and map the ancestry of entire populations. In 2015, geneticists from Harvard University published a research study where they analyzed more than 100 skeletons found in Europe and the Eurasia steppe, most of them from the Kurgan burials. The result of the research pointed out with strong probability that around 2500 BC, the Yamnas left the Eurasia steppes, stormed into northern and central Europe, and spread their DNA among the local population. The genetic findings, along with the linguistic evidence, strengthened the theory that the Yamna people were the Indo-Europeans. The genetic discoveries also offer an answer to the question we asked earlier. Why did the Indo-European language spread so far and wide relative to the other languages that existed at the same time? Well, the Indo-European language has quite a few words related to milk and other dairy products, and we know that its people raised domesticated animals like cows and sheep. This suggests that dairy was a significant part of the Yamna's nutrition, even though the ability to digest dairy isn't so obvious. In many parts of the world today, most people are lactose tolerant, but there's still a large number of people that are not. But if we were to go back to this period of history, almost everybody would have been intolerant for lactose. You couldn't have digested milk and cheese and dairy products beyond children. Uh, because of, of an enzyme there. Um, but geneticists have looked and discovered that within this same region, among these same people, there was a, you know, sort of a, uh, an evolution there that allowed them to become lactose tolerant in adulthood. And it's believed that that was also a contributing factor because now they could live off the animals. They didn't have to sacrifice and kill animals for meat and food. They could just live off the milk and the dairy. Um, and they also think that it allowed them to become bigger and stronger. And this is, again, this is where archaeology comes in because they can compare. These people had very particular types of graves uh, or burial sites called Kurgan burials. And they're very different from the other peoples in the region. And when they go back and look at people buried in these Kurgan burials versus the other types of burials, they notice that the people in these Kurgan burials uh, or Kurgan graves are several inches taller than the other people on average, about four to six inches taller. And they think that that's simply a sign of the fact that they were living a healthier lifestyle. They were living, you know, again, they, they, they weren't having to scavenge for, for whatever food they could find. They, were, they had a healthy diet. They were basically expanding into areas where most of the people were hunter-gatherers. So you know, it didn't take much of an advantage for them to overwhelm the people they encountered during that time. So this means that the Yamnas, the speakers of the young Proto-Indo-European language, had a mutation that made them able to digest dairy even as adults, which was very rare at the time. 
this sort of nutrition made them stronger and along with the advantage of riding horses and not having to depend on water sources, this meant no one could stand in their way. They conquered enormous territories and replaced populations less advanced and weaker than them. This is how the path was paved for the Indo-European language to spread all around Europe in the west, India and Persia in the east, and later even farther. Then you have to consider the fact that through European colonialism and expansion, those languages have continued. In fact, if you think of, for example, the, the European colonization of North America and South America, you can view that as just a later Indo-European migration. I mean, if you really want to think of it in linguistic terms, uh, because that's ultimately what happened. English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, those languages are now the dominant languages in, in North America and South America, having pushed out most of the, the native kind of aboriginal languages. So, yeah, you end up with, uh, I think it's about half the population of the world speaks an Indo-European language. Of course, the big rival there is Chinese, because there's just such a large number of Chinese. Uh, and then, uh, then you, of course, add everybody else in the mix, too. But it, it ends up being about half the world. So one day the Indo-Europeans will conquer the galaxy, maybe. <laughs> well, it, it is fascinating because you can, if you think of history a little bit differently, as I try to do in the podcast, don't think of it strictly in terms of political and military, but think of it in terms of language, you know, then, then we may not be done with that migration. Or that, that linguistic expansion is still ongoing even today. So if we measure success in terms of spreading your language and culture, the Yamna people might be one of the most successful groups in human history. But there seems to be one group of people who resist the Yamnas and their impressive horses and milk-fed muscles. Where the language or, or where the people kind of hit their limit was by the time they got into you know, Mesopotamia and the, the Near East, by that point in history, there were existing cities and city-states and civilizations starting to emerge. And it's believed that that's why the language kind of stopped at that point. And of course, in those regions, you have a different language family, the Semitic language family. And they think that's why that barrier kind of existed, because at that point, once there was an established civilization in place, you know, the, the advantages that they might have had in, in Europe or northern India kind of, you know, were, were more limited and so that might have been why that became kind of a, a linguistic barrier over time. The fact that the walls of the great cities between the Euphrates and the Tiger, Iraq and Syria of today, blocked the Yamnas and the Indo-European language from spreading made me think of an interesting question. My mother tongue, Hebrew, belongs to the family of Semitic languages, which are very different from English, French, Spanish and other Indo-European languages. Still, could there be a connection between the Semitic languages and the Indo-European ones? In other words, could there have been an even earlier culture that spoke a language that later split into the Indo-European and the Semitic languages? I asked Kevin that question, and it turns out that I'm not the first to think of it. You know, this is a question I get quite often. Uh, in fact, someone emailed me today and asked a similar question. Is there a connection between the languages of, of Eastern Asia and the Indo-European languages? At this point, there isn't really anything definitive. But we know that languages don't just 
exist or come out of nowhere. They evolve over time. They came from somewhere. I think there is a general view among many linguists that, yes, there was an, there was an older language that preceded the Indo-European language, and it very likely shares, if we, tra- if we were able to trace it far enough, we may never be able to do that, we might find an ultimate common ancestor between the, the major language families that we have today, uh, perhaps the Semitic language. You know, it's an interesting side note to that question you asked, and, and uh, another expert in this field is John McWhorter, and he's written several books about the history of, of English and development of English. What Germanic scholars have noticed is that while there are a lot of Indo-European words within the Germanic languages, there are also a lot of words that are not Indo-European. They came from somewhere else. And so, you know, I mentioned the word sheep. Well, the Indo-European word is the word that gives us the word you, E-W-E. Sheep came from somewhere else. And there are lots of examples of that, but but while those are common words within the Germanic languages, um, you know, the historians, linguists don't exactly know where all those Germanic words came from. Well, John McWhorter has made an argument in his book, uh, Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue is his book. He argues that, that that body of Germanic words that we can't really identify the source may have come from a Semitic language. He feels that during the time when the Phoenicians, for example, were expanding around the Mediterranean, uh, that there might have been a related group of speakers that traveled into Europe and ultimately settled in Northern Europe. And that, that might be the ultimate source because he has detected what he's identified as links between those otherwise unidentifiable words and ancient Semitic languages. Now, I'll say that that is... His view, it's not generally accepted within the linguistic community, but he is, uh, he's, he is very much um, on the cutting edge of some of these theories related to the, the history of English and Germanic languages. And I'd be fascinated to see where that research goes because it could show that ultimately the, at least the core part of the Germanic languages might have a Semitic root if we look close enough. You know, Kelly, this episode reminded me of something. Do you ever get the feeling of estrangement when you travel abroad? I mean, when you don't speak the local language and no one speaks English? Yeah, it can feel scary and helpless to be completely unable to communicate. It's just not something that we're used to. I once ended up in a local hospital in northern Thailand when I was by myself and very ill, and no one spoke any English except for just a few words. I remember one of the medical staff looking in an English dictionary in order to ask me questions. I needed their medical assistance, but I was helpless to explain myself or ask questions about what they planned to do with me, since we didn't speak each other's language. It's one of the most helpless feelings I've ever had. We ended up kind of communicating through hand gestures and smiles and frowns. I survived. Wow, that's scary. You know, I had a similar feeling once when I was pickpocketed in Guatemala. I had no money left at all, and none of the police officers knew English, so I basically had no hope of getting my wallet back, and I had to ask for favors from other tourists until my parents wired me some money. These kinds of experiences can really emphasize the helplessness feeling of not knowing the local language. 
but revealing connections between languages that until now seemed so foreign and complicated changed the way I think of languages. Farsi, Latin, Sanskrit always seemed odd in comparison to English, French, or Spanish, languages that we're exposed to on almost a daily basis. Knowing that there's one source for all these languages, a unique and a very old language, makes it easier for me to recognize the similarities and resemblances. I think I know what you mean. Focusing on differences between languages or cultures and feeling alienated is sometimes easier than finding a common ground. But once that you know there is one, it's possible to identify similarities and lessen any feelings of estrangement. So, you know what? Maybe next time when we walk the streets of Mumbai or Tehran, or the next time you get sick in Thailand, we won't feel so like total strangers. Now that is an encouraging conclusion. That's it for this episode. I'd like to welcome our new listeners from the History of English podcast. Kevin Stroud was kind enough to mention Curious Minds in his latest episode, and many of you gave our podcast a try and even reached out to me. So thanks to listener William Stone, who came over from the History of English podcast and suggested I do a podcast about genetics and the new very exciting CRISPR technology, which I will, I promise, it's an amazing technology. Thanks also to Joe DiMario, who commented on our series on the U-boat technology of World War II and wrote, I just want to thank all those who served and gave their lives to defeat Hitler and his ideology. I'm with you on that one, Joe. And lastly, a big thanks to Kasfi, who gave us a great review on iTunes. He wrote, The biggest bonus, though, my kids love to listen to it on long car rides. My daughter commented, I didn't know science can be that interesting. Thanks, Kasfi. This is wonderful. And to all of you with kids in the car, I can recommend our series called Astronomy Shorts, which Kelly hosts solo. It's about amazing phenomena and objects in our universe and solar system, and the episodes are short and really light. So I think they're perfect for kids. Give Astronomy Shorts a try and let me know how it went. I'd like to mention a great podcast named The Surface Smiths. It's a show about the Microsoft Surface computer and related technologies, such as Windows, Xbox, etc. Hosts are David Smith, Colin Smith, And Cortana Smith. Yeah, Cortana is a host on the show too. Each episode of The Surface Smiths brings product reviews, tips and tricks and news about everything Microsoft. So if you're a Windows geek, give them a try at surfacesmiths.com. Our website is at cmpod.net, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes, plus links to our Facebook page and Twitter profile, at Curious Minds Pod. Curious Minds are Kelly Lockley, editor and co-host, Nir Sayag is our sound engineer, Danity Moore is in charge of BizDev, and me, Ran Levy, producer and writer. See you again next week. 
バイバイ。